Blog Talk Radio. Are you tired of being sheep? Well, so is he. Get a friend, get informed, and get involved. It's We Are Not Cattle Radio. Good evening and welcome to We Are Not Cattle Radio. I'm your host, Jake Counts, coming to you live from Atlanta, Georgia, every Tuesday and Thursday evening from 9 until 10 p.m. It is the 7th day of November 2013, and tonight it is going to be a little bit of a different format, which should be fun. These always make for interesting shows. Um, With me on the line, I have... From the Journalistic Revolution, Robert Wassman, as well as Josh Wiley, also from the Journalistic Revolution. And tonight we are going to discuss and chat about the Trivium. Now, myself, this is something very fresh to me, so I'm pretty excited about it. And it really has changed my perspective of the way that I communicate with people and also the way that I interact with people on a day-to-day basis. Not from a purely, um, I guess, a conversational standpoint, but it does change the way that you break down information and really make it more um, palpable to your brain, and um, that way your brain can make sense of the information that it's receiving, and you, and you have this um, um, ongoing moments of clarity, if you will. So... Enough hippy-dippy bull, you know what, Uh, let's get right to the guys. Um, Josh and um, Robert, thanks so much for coming on, guys. Uh, Thanks so much for having us, Jake. Yeah, it's always a pleasure coming on here. Awesome, man. Well, um, great to have you guys. Um, um, I know that everybody understands that you guys have been on the show before, and you guys are over at Liberty Movement Radio, and, um, and you guys do your thing there. But uh, let's talk about the Trivium. Um, who would like to start with the basics of the Trivium? And um, Robert, do you want to take that? Or Josh, either either one of you guys? I, I definitely think Josh should take, take that one. Okay. All right. Well, we'll, we'll kick it to Josh. And um, so, Josh, briefly break down to, um, to the audience what, like you said, this is probably – before we came on air, everybody, Josh said that this is either going to be—you guys are either going to be intrigued and enthralled, and this is going to be a fantastic show, or you might zone out and pass out in your soup in like 15 minutes. So, stay with us. <laughs> You'll, we'll try to—we'll try to keep you awake and keep you alert. But uh, Josh, break down for everybody the trivium briefly. Well, I—I I really hope we can make this entertaining because uh, the trivium truly is such a valuable tool in not only understanding the world around you, um, but but coming. To truth in the the pieces of information that, that you may or may not be researching, but also it's a great way to interact with other people, as you noted. Um, so the trivium, the classical trivium at least, uh, started off, oh geez, it was the foundation of uh, liberal arts for hundreds, if not thousands of years, uh, and it consisted of uh, general grammar, uh, Aristotelian logic, and classical rhetoric. So, or shortened grammar, logic, and rhetoric in that specific order. That's very important. The order is incredibly important. Uh, the original classical trivium 
was actually uh, almost sort of a closed-loop system uh, in that it was um, very easy to uh, manipulate the way people thought using that method. Um, but now we have something known as uh, the trivium method, uh, which is a modification of the classical trivium that it's almost a reverse engineering of the classical trivium. So uh, basically what the grammar, logic, and rhetoric are is the general grammar, it asks the questions. And the questions are the who, the what, the where, and the when of a subject. Uh, this discovers and orders facts of reality uh, to comprise basic systematic knowledge. Now the logic which comes next, uh, answers the why question. It's the developing the faculty of reason uh, in, in established or, or valid relationships among these facts. Systematic understanding. So it's how these things all fit together. And then classical rhetoric is uh, simply how you express this in either written word or spoken word to other people. And more importantly, though, how you apply that knowledge and understanding, which truly is wisdom at its core. Uh, so what we see is that the Trivium Method is a three-step process to uh, kind of be given an input of, of information or, or a suite of information and, uh, and breaking that down, uh, inputting that into, uh, again, a logical process so you can think about that, uh, and, and then learning how to, how to express your, your feelings or opinions on that matter once you've reached truth or what you to be truth to, to other people. So we have the basics of a new, it's, it's, well, to me, it was a new way of thinking because I went through the classical training in, um, in K through 12 education. And typically you learn how to use rhetoric, but you don't really understand the significance of, of, of the grammar. Once again, I, I, I drop back to the point of if you ask a, um, a free marketeer or somebody that believes in free market economics, if you ask them the definition of capitalism, they're going to tell you it's the free market definition of capitalism. You know, let the goods and exchanges take care of themselves and then the prices and, and all these other, you know, the bad products will work themselves out and those types of things. Um, but if you ask somebody that has a different ideology or a, a different perspective, Let's say they have a more of a collectivist or um, a socialist or, or communist model, and they would they would perceive capitalism as something that it's innately um, bad and it's typically confused with crony capitalism. So, from my experience and what I've noticed is that when you do have a change in your philosophy, when you get on the same page with people when you understand what they're talking about, like what is your working definition of capitalism? And when they explain to you, and then you explain to them what your working definition is so that they understand where you're coming from, from your basis of the actual verb itself, or the, yes, excuse me. And then from there, the conversation can build. And um, Robert, what do you want to add to this? Because this, this is all very new to me, but uh, it has actually encompassed a lot of my life over the last uh, couple of months just trying to really delve into this thing and it's very fascinating and very um, almost invigorating to to experience this and use it uh, absolutely I think uh, right off the bat I would have to say my because uh, uh, I'm fairly new to it too Josh was the one who brought this to my attention but it seemed like one of those things that you're all like well yeah duh but mm -hmm. it was just 
into words, you know, like, oh, we should know, because that was one of my biggest complaints about debating people is I'd often hear, well, I guess you have a different, def- a different definition of the word blah, you know, or whatever the mm-hmm. said word was than I do. And I would get frustrated because I was like, why? We have a dictionary. Um, right. And I think that especially step one, I think step one, if people could get just get on that level alone, we sure. could see a improvement in uh in conversation and gentlemanly debate, if you will. Yeah, and what he's referring to, ladies and gentlemen, is uh, step one is the grammar. Make sure that your definition of the term that you're trying to have a conversation with, you know, to someone else, that your definition is similar or they at least understand your definition of that term. Because a lot of the times, and Josh, you even spoke to this, and I'll let you speak to it a little bit further, but you've said that you've been in debates with people that have different philosophical ideologies than you on, on the complete opposite end of the spectrum. But once you break down the grammar from the two sides, you guys really do agree on a lot of things, and it's because the grammar from each, um, I guess, political position has a, a different connotation. Oh, absolutely. And that's why the grammar aspect of the trivium is so important. And quite frankly, in modern society, I think it's the part of the trivium that, that is most lost on us. We have a... We have a very left-brained society today. We like to ask the why, you know, the big question, the why, how it all works, how it all fits together. But we don't mm-hmm. ask the, the, found, the, the questions that are the foundation of that why, which is the who, what, where, and when. Uh, or mm-hmm. if we do ask those questions, uh, we don't necessarily have all of the contextual information to make those questions valuable. Um, I think a, a wonderful example is, is some of the occulted information that, that we study on a fairly regular basis. You know, if, if someone mm-hmm. has asked the who, what, where, and when, for example, about World War II, um, but has not encountered the work of someone like Anthony Sutton or Carol Quigley, then they'll sure. have a, an inherently flawed model. And that's really the difference between the classical trivium and the trivium method, in that the classical trivium, uh, you essentially have a hierarchical power-driven structure in the Catholic Church feeding definitions to people. So they mm-hmm. control exactly. ha- the development of the who, what, where, and when. But, you know, mm-hmm. see, seeing as we are, uh, I, 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 I would be hard-pressed to call us enlightened human beings at this stage in history, but uh, we're at least <laughs> If anything, to, we're to, right, regressing at a rapid pace. Exactly. But, you know, we do have this ability to kind of employ the Socratic method. Uh, and you, you brought up an excellent point. When I, when I do engage people from all over the political spectrum, from, again, revolutionary communists to uh, anarcho-syndicalists, uh, your typical Republicans, Democrats, conservatives, libertarians, or liberals, who may not necessarily be on the same page as me, uh, it, it's, it's one thing to, to engage in a debate with people. Uh, it's another thing entirely uh, to, to make that debate not about stating your thesis and them stating theirs and then arguing about it. If you simply ask questions as opposed to, to contradicting or, or kind of getting in someone's face about their beliefs, not only are you going to gain a greater understanding of where they're coming from, but you can kind of uh, a- answer these who, what, where, and when questions to them about the world around them a- a- as it pertains to them a- and yourself. So when you get to the logic step, the why, and, and of course the rhetoric kind of explaining yourself to these people, uh, even if you're not necessarily 100% on the same page, you know mm-hmm. where the other is coming from, uh, which, mm-hmm. which makes for a much more constructive dialogue. And is that why you see as the as the vocabulary that we use on a day-to-day basis shrinks, 
Is that why there's so so many different opinions out there and so many different, um, I guess, conflicting views? Because I think if we if we broadened our vocabulary and even you know made concrete definitions for certain things in modern society, then we wouldn't run into a lot of these issues and a lot of these like you like you like to talk about Robert debating people and. Um, Robert, you said you're relatively new to this. What about this to you is is um, is enlightening? Well, again, it, when he said it, it kind of just clicked in my mind, like, why haven't I already known about this? I mean, it seems so familiar, almost ingrained in the way that we already speak. Sure. Um, but what I think is enlightening, and I think that would it, – it's really important to talk about and get out to the masses – is because it's the only way to truly speak. Everything else is just rhetoric, which is an important step. But rhetoric, right. as we know, is, is meaningless and, and has no purpose without the logic and the grammar behind it. So mm-hmm. what I find enlightening is it's almost, it's, it's almost like being taught how to speak all over again. Yes, and, it, and once again, it, it really does it, – it helps your brain sync up with the idea and the, and the thought with actual terms that you can put in an order that people will understand those terms. And if you're on the same level as far as the level of understanding of those terms, if each party understands the working definition of that term, it makes the conversation that much more exciting. So let's – you know, we've talked about the base and the fundamentals of this. Let's use this in an example. What to you guys is a good example? And then I'd like to get into things like logical fallacies. They're obviously very fun and exciting because that's where all the meat and potatoes is, everybody. We're going to lay the foundation here for you for the first few minutes, and then we're going to get into the fun stuff, the slippery slope, the, um, the, the no real Scotsman, you know, those types of logical fallacies. And then once you hear us talk about them and show you how they're used in politics, you'll be able to start pointing it out by yourself and just say, oh, that's a slippery slope fallacy. That means X, Y, and Z, which we all did have this training, as Robert said, at one point in time, but it gets... It gets thrown out because it's not something that's used in modern day um, modern day society. Usually, only things that are used are logic and rhetoric. So, anyway, that being said, um, what's a good example? Um, Robert, you got a good example, or Josh? Either one of you guys. Let's get a, um, a just a basic plain Jane example of a um, of a statement, and then we'll break it down using grammar, logic, and rhetoric. Um, I would say a great example and a very topical example would be. Um, I have my rights. It's okay. great to try and, and, and pick apart with that. Okay. All right. So, the, all right, Josh, you take it from here. All right. Grammar would be what for these, for I have my rights. You would want to understand, have... you would want to understand the working definition of rights, correct? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That would be the first question I would ask. Yeah, well, what are rights? So, I mean, so... And, I, and the reason I think it's topical is because it's one that a lot of people, uh, they spread the word around a lot, but they don't necessarily mm-hmm. know what the word rights mean. Um, okay. they, uh, so uh, that's another one. The other one is, what do you mean by have? Mm-hmm. What, how do that's, you own these rights? That's a good point. Absolutely. You know? I mean, it, oh, go ahead. No, 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 no go <laughs> I, I was just going to say, and, you know, we're using rights in the possessive form because you supposedly own them. You know, uh, there, there are all sorts of great questions you could ask. Uh, where do these rights come from? 
are they granted to you by uh, some some humanly entity, or are you born with mm-hmm. these rights? Uh, mm-hmm. which, which gets into another set of questions about natural law versus the law of man or common mm-hmm. law, uh, mm-hmm. or, or or even um, I guess uh, maritime law or any of these other sort of sort of uh, governmentally driven law systems. Why? Uh, I think you're 18. That's another good question. Yeah, it, exactly. So. So when you when you get into these questions uh, like this one, you know it's the the who, the what, the where, and the when. It's all important to hash out. I, I think one of the best examples that that I have encountered uh, using the trivium in recent times was again in a debate with a, a, a friend of oh more of a discussion with a friend of mine who was a communist, and uh, you know he says you know he wants to see the bourgeois head on a platter and. He hates capitalism and all this, all this wonderful stuff. Well, then you ask him, you know, well, what is your working definition of capitalism? Mm-hmm. What is your working definition of, of capital? Who created mm-hmm. that definition of capital uh, for for the Marxist ideology to develop out of? Right. You so know? do you so, take so, do you take like the John Locke philosophy, or do you take like the you know that your labor is you know currency? Yeah, go ahead. Well, it, exactly. That's the, these are the questions that need to be hashed out because. If you have a working definition of, of capitalism as state capitalism, which or crony capitalism, as people like to call it today, that's a very different thing than, than uh, you know, laissez-faire capitalism. And even if you were to go back to Wealth of Nations, and you know, at, at its core, the Communist Manifesto truly is a, a refutation of uh, Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations. Adam Smith had a very different definition of capital than we currently have today. Adam Smith mm-hmm. essentially said that, uh, you know, uh, we... Um, when you produce a good, uh, mm-hmm. the the value of that good is is based for the most part on how long and how much effort, how much time you put into creating that good. But you know, obviously, we now know today that if I spend you know ten years making the world's most beautiful rocking chair, if nobody wants my rocking chair, that doesn't mean that it's worth anything. So mm-hmm. when when Karl Marx comes along and he says, okay, here's this working definition of capital. I think that we can mobilize a great collectivized state to put a lot of time and effort and energy into creating certain goods and services for people. Uh, that, that's simply a fallacious uh, argument in, in, in today's terms because we know that the, the market, uh, the truly free market, sets these prices, mm-hmm. supply and demand, uh, which, which fluctuate wild, wildly from place to place. So once you're kind of on the same page about those things, you know, you've asked the who, the what, the where and the when, you've gotten all those important kind of topics down on what is capitalism, what is communism, where do these things come from, just as a basic overview, obviously I'm, I'm skipping a lot here, mm-hmm. that's, when, sure. that's, when you can, that's when you can go into the why, the formal logic. Why do you see this conflict between communism and capitalism now knowing that the history of both of these terms are very, very different than what you mm-hmm. might have originally perceived and that the evolution of these terms have, have uh, developed very different definitions over time and have meant different things to different people. Uh, so, so then you can really have a con- comprehensive uh, discussion about trying to understand how all of these things fit together. Well, that would lead me into a, a good segue for logical fallacies. Um, one of my favorite logical fallacies is the no true Scotsman logical fallacy. So everybody, um, or Josh, why don't you, since you've been doing this longer than we have, why don't you give your working definition of what a logical fallacy is? Oh my goodness. I would, I would say that a logical fallacy 
um, is, is, an, is an argument that is based on either a false premise or a premise that is meant to deceive uh, the individual that's receiving that argument. And the no true Scotsman um, fallacy is something that people use on a day-to-day basis, and it's typically done at, at the, um, the Republican-Democrat level. And what it states, and, and I'm reading from, and I want to give credit to where credit is due, this is logicalfallacies.info, and the, um, their explanation of the no true Scotsman fallacy is that the, true, the no true Scotsman fallacy is a way of reinterpreting the evidence in order to prevent the, refu- the refutation of one's position. So you take their definition and you reinterpret it in order to basically refutate the position that they have taken on whichever said argument you guys have. And then propose counterexamples to the theory that are dismissed as irrelevant solely because they are counterexamples, but perfectly because they are not a, what the theory is about. So, um, Josh, are you, um, are you, I guess, lucid enough to understand what I just said right there and make that into something that people can comprehend? Because I think I just butchered that example right there. <laughs> oh, absolutely. It's, it's simply being faced with a counterexample to, uni- to a universal claim. It's called the mm-hmm. no true Scotsman uh, fallacy because the, the, one of the m- most used examples is that no, no Scotsman would do such a thing. Uh, mm-hmm. And that, that's uh, rather than denying the counterexample or rejecting the original universal claim, uh, the fallacy modifies the subject of the assertion to exclude the specific ca- case uh, or others like it by, by use of rhetoric uh, without reference uh, to the specific objective rule. Uh, and I, I, f- I feel like that sounds like a, gobble, a bunch of gobbledygook as well. Um, That's all right. We'll get there. We'll get there, man. <laughs> Robert, you wanted to chime in. Let's see if you can simplify this as you watch Robert uh, or watch Josh and I butcher this thing. He, okay. Here, here's, a, here's a good example, though. Uh, Give an example, and then I'll, I'll, I'll go with what I think is the most simplified definition. For sure, yeah. It's like, uh, let's say we have two people, person A and person B. Person A says, uh, no Scotsman puts sugar on his porridge. And person B says, I am Scottish, and I put sugar on my porridge. And then person A would say, then you are not a true Scotsman. Uh, which is obviously false, because he is, he is Scottish, but it, it's, uh, it's simply, uh, again, a refutation of that counterexample that, that makes it an informal fallacy. Uh, yeah, it, it basically, it could be called an appeal to purity as a way to dismiss relevant criticisms or flaws of an argument. So it's like, oh, well, you're not pure. You, you know, that's why you'll you'll take salt or sugar on your bagel or whatever. <laughs> it, it, Absolutely. That, that's a great way of describing it. Yeah, so basically, all right. uh, also known because uh, it's the no true Scotsman, or a.k.a. the appeal to purity. Okay. So that's one of them. That's one of the logical fallacies. Um, and you guys sp- spend some time in going over these. We're not going to touch them all. But uh, the no true Scotsman's one, the straw man fallacy is another one. Um, Robert, you you obviously deal with this in the amount of time that you spend debating people. Um, what would your working definition of the straw man fallacy be, or the straw man argument? I guess. I would say it's the most common of logical fallacies, and it's simple. It's misrepresenting someone's argument to make it easier attack. Like um, you know, you you say you know I don't like 
sunny days. They bother me. Man, he, that guy over there, he just loves rain. That's all he wants is thunderstorm and rain. He wants people to flood and die. Mm-hmm. That's the, the straw man. And it's the most commonly used, if you ask me, where uh, people misrepresent your argument to try and make it easier to attack, especially when they're already losing in a debate. Absolutely. And, you know, typically these, um, these, these weapons will be wielded as you see somebody intellectually floundering. That will definitely happen. Um, any, oh, Josh, what's your favorite logical fallacy? I gave, you one of, I gave you mine, so what's yours? Oh, my goodness. My favorite logical fallacy. I don't know if uh, I have... Uh, not a favorite. The one that you encounter the most. The one that you encounter the most... Um, let's say via let's say via um, mainstream media. What would be a good logical fallacy for people to understand about mainstream media? Oh, I, I think certainly one of the most common logical fallacies, if not the most common in, in mainstream media and politics specifically, in addition to the straw man, is uh, is probably the ad hominem attack. Oh, that's uh, a good one. I love that one. Yeah, and do either of you guys want to go into what what that is? No, you you go ahead and you I, I got I got um, a bitter taste in my mouth from that one because I actually used that on somebody and then he called me out on it and it felt really bad. Well, it, it's it's one that is very easy to to kind of get whipped up into the fervor of of debate and uh, and use against people uh, as sort of a knee jerk reaction, which again is why the trivium is so important to to be asking questions as opposed to arguing with people necessarily. But uh, the ad hominem attack is basically a rejection of someone's argument uh, based on an irrelevant fact about the person who is making that argument. So, Jake, if you were to say to me that, um, you know, you really like, I don't know, Dodge Neons, and I said, well, of course you would say that. You are, I don't know, that's, that's a poor example. Because <laughs> I'm, sh- I'm short. You would say that because you're short and small and you need a small car. There you go. Perfect. Perfect. You know, and but that has nothing to do with with your substantive opinion about Dodge Neons. It's a it's it's a personal attack about you Uh, Mm -hmm. or, you know, common ones are, you know, someone will bring up a point and uh, someone will dismiss them. Oh, you're a you're a far left loon or you're an alcoholic or you're uh, a priest or whatever kind of label people want to put on individuals, which distracts people from the actual argument. And Again, I really want, if, if, if anyone gets out there listening right now, takes anything from this show, it should be that you can look up these logical fallacies, you can incorporate them into your mental operating system, and you can watch anything on television. If you're a person who watches television, I'm not, but you know I understand a lot of people out there are. If you're watching, uh, again, a newscast, a political debate, even a television show, uh, Absolutely, commercials. Great, another great example. Oh, beautiful with example. Fallacies. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hey, if you buy Tide, your whites will be whiter. Like, wait, that doesn't make any sense, but there you go. Exactly. Buy this beer. Get this pretty girl. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So it's it's something that if you understand once again the grammar, logic, and rhetoric behind the trivium method. It makes your life um, a little bit more interesting, and I think it engages you a little bit more because you kind of, or at least I do now, and maybe it's just because I'm new to it, I kind of play the game with myself of, you know, if I talk to people, are they using logical fallacies? Is it, are, and I almost like keep score in my head. It's like, oh, I know what that is. Yeah, I know what you're trying to do there. Oh, obviously your definition is not the same as mine. 
But um, do you guys find that you're more, um, I don't know, I guess that would be a really bizarre question, but why not? Do you guys, do you guys find yourself more engaged in society by utilizing this and, and thinking on a, um, on a different, I guess, uh, more critical level? I would have to say 100%, yeah. Um, ever since, like, I, it, because, you know, you cannot unsee what, what has been seen. And, and once you look up these logical fallacies, by the way, my favorite logical fallacy is the fallacy Oh, fallacy. we didn't even take yours. The what now? The fallacy fallacy, pre, uh, presuming that because someone's claim was poorly argued, that then, therefore, the claim must be wrong. Oh, well done. Okay, the fallacy, fallacy. See, we're. I, I told you. Listen, guys, we're gonna. This is some really kind of, um, I guess, heavy info for people that are just tuning in. But uh, we're gonna try to have some fun with it. We actually just picked up a uh, another friend of ours, uh, Jacob Yannicky, is um, calling in to weigh in. So um, Jacob Yannicky, um, formerly of the Adam versus the Man podcast. And by the way, if um, somehow Adam, if you get a chance to catch this radio program. Um, glad to see you out, brother. Wish I could, uh, wish I could come and give you a big hug. But um, Jacob, how you doing, brother? I'm all right. I'm making it. I'm digging the uh, the logic uh, 101, I guess here today. Oh gosh. Moral, moral, uh, moral philosophy, moral ethics 101 here. Well, I mean, that's. Um, I think that's what. We can all uh, we can all I guess agree if that might be a fallacy fallacy but we all might be able to agree that um, we could use a little bit more we could all use a little bit more morals in our society and and people with uh, critical thinking skills but we're trying to arm you guys with the um, with the tools in order to begin to think critically and and think about what you're saying and and, and what people are saying to you and. And don't just take it for using your definition of the term and, and interpreting that as something that might be misconstrued and might not even be remotely close to the, what the person wants to, uh, to convey to you. But, um, Jacob, what is your favorite logical fallacy, if you have one, that hasn't already been said yet? Well, yeah, I mean, you guys have touched on a lot of uh, very good ones, but I feel like quite often there's uh, appeal to emotion that's u- utilized a lot. I think uh, fear a lot of the times is probably one of the most common ones where people are, are just trying to uh, instill, instill or appeal to the emotion of fear and increasing fear and prejudice and just sort of using that prejudice to build these uh, fallacies against the opposite side, and I think uh, Josh kind of pointed to it uh, with capitalism. You know, you might get a lot of uh, liberals just because of uh, their hatred or just because of their built-in prejudice towards corporatism. They might just be, you know, I think that's why they kind of are able to convince people that capitalism is corporatism because they're just lumping all, all these these terms together, I think, through, through kind of their own fear of... of uh, these corporate, you know, which is a legitimate fear to have, you know, monopolies taking over. It's certainly not anything we we want to see occurring, um, but that's uh, often utilized. But you know, you need to understand at the same time and and understand that uh, it's not uh, it's not a completely encompassing the term. Uh, we kind of have to step back from our own fears and prejudices. It's kind of like you said, that's what we're trying to do. Be a little bit more. Uh, logical things, get a little more clear understanding of, of what we're what we're trying to get at. Yeah, and I think that the like uh, like um, like I said when this this show first began, it's going to be it's going to be entertaining, it's going to be enlightening. It's 
you know, like I said, if if anybody's still listening, obviously this this struck a nerve with you, or this was something that you were like, that you were probably like myself and Robert, you were sitting there going, man, something just doesn't seem like I'm making all the connecting all the dots here. How am I so far off from what this person views this as? How is that how is that possible? It doesn't seem like the way that they carry themselves that we would be that far off, but. It really, um, it really comes down to the point of understanding, once again, baseline fundamentals. So, um, moving, moving right along. What do you guys want to, uh, what do you guys want to bring up next? I mean, we we touched on logical fallacies. We touched on the trivium. I do want to play um, towards the end of the broadcast um, this evening. I do want to play this clip that I'm uploading right now, and it's um, it's in honor of Bill Cooper who um, passed away on November 5th, so I whiffed on that one, but um, for anybody that doesn't know, Bill Cooper was probably one of the the better researchers that's, that's uh, ever lived in the conspiracy land and um, attributed a lot of his work to being um, top secret intelligence from, um, from the Navy, so I've studied a lot of his work. I think he did some, some really good stuff, opened my eyes a lot. Um, do you guys, um, Josh, I know you have, but Robert, have you ever followed any of Bill Cooper's work before we get back into the trivium? Yeah, uh, he was definitely one of the first people. I think I, I ran into him when I was in California, not him personally. I ran into Bill Cooper when I was in California on Coast to Coast AM. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where I, I first ran into him. But yes, I've studied a lot of his research. And uh, Josh, what did, uh, I don't know, did you... Um, you and I've talked about him briefly, but um, did you were you a big fan of his work? And did you uh, did you read uh, did you read Behold a Pale Horse and all that stuff? Did I lose? Did we lose Josh? Uh, yeah, I guess. Well, so. I'm, so, I'm so sorry. My my microphone was muted. I yeah, I've um I've never read Behold a Pale Horse actually, uh, mm-hmm. largely because I don't really think it's worth reading because Bill Cooper later on in his research you know, kind of uh, strayed away from virtually all of the claims he made in that book. I guess it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's fairly useful at understanding of, of the psychological warfare operation that mm-hmm. is uh, the, the UFO kind of movement, but it does portray uh, uh, these, these alien forces as truly existing uh, uh, and, and interacting with Earth uh, at certain points during human history. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that other life doesn't exist in the universe. I think it'd be a very arrogant statement to to say that that it doesn't. Um, mm-hmm. But that being said, uh, certainly the the things that are in Behold a Pale Horse are are uh, are a psyop, and and Bill Cooper recognized that later on in his career. I, I certainly think he's a prolific researcher. Uh, mm-hmm. I think Mystery Babylon is a wonderful series to 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 have a a, a more comprehensive understanding of the mystery schools and the occult. I don't mm-hmm. necessarily agree with all of the um, conclusions that Bill Cooper draws about the mystery schools, um, mm-hmm. but I, I, I do think, again, he was a prolific researcher, and he's still to this day someone who uh, is worth uh, uh, looking up. He, he's a tough researcher to deal with, given that most of his, his work was through audio, and because mm-hmm. it's through audio, Bill Cooper also had a I don't you can be the judge for yourself whether it was a bad habit or he was being deliberately deceptive in certain uh, places. But Bill Cooper had a bad habit of not giving people the sourcing uh, or the or the background for some of the books that he read from 
Um, mm-hmm. So, which makes some of his stuff very, very hard to 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 verify or or, or refute for that matter. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, just like just like with any researcher, you know, you got to tread lightly. But I I still think Bill Cooper, uh, his, his work is uh, again worth listening to. Yeah, absolutely. It's um it's fascinating to always look at different people's perspectives. So. I mean that's what that's what I typically get out of researchers and 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 watching documentaries and and reading other people's work and you know cross referencing that with the books that I've read and once again the the way that I kind of interpret my life is I can only look at the things that I've done the things that I've accomplished and the things that I've seen so I can't really make any assumptions that somebody doesn't know um a a um I guess doesn't have a different angle or something like that because um, once you look at life in a, a critical view like we're doing tonight, you'll understand that there is no black and white. There are only angles, and you have to look at which angle this person's coming from and then read. You can read the exact same um, you know history of an exact same you know event and in t- place and time, and it will be completely different if it's written from a different perspective. So. That being said, moving on, um, what do you guys want to get into? Um, do you think that would be fun for the people to um, understand how to use the Trivium, or do you guys want to give some references of places to start? What do you think the next best step for us um, you know, divulging this information to the audience is? Um, well, re- I guess really quickly, I'd like to read a quote from Sir Thomas More, uh, which has a little bit of relevance to the Trivium. It, is, uh, it goes like this. For if you, the rulers, suffer your people to be ill-educated and their manners to be corrupted from their infancy and then punish them for those crimes for which their first education disposed them, what else is to be concluded from this? That you first make thieves and outlaws and then punish them. So essentially what what Thomas More, who lived from 1478 to 1535, uh, that's a quote from Utopia, book one, what he's describing is the process of, of occulting what we are teaching you tonight, the trivium method and the usage of logical fallacies. If you go to uh, any, any top-tier boarding school uh, in America uh, and on a high school level, uh, an Andover College, uh, a St. Mary's, uh, um, oh, a Cranbrook, uh, these kind of elite private boarding schools where, these, where elites kind of rub shoulders and then obviously – uh, in in higher institutions of learning like Ivy League schools, this is what they learn there. Uh, they learn tools of intellectual self-defense, um, yet they don't disseminate these tools to the masses. We get public schools um, that are inherently anti-critical thinking and are essentially prop- machines of propaganda. So what he's saying is that you, you've got this ruling class that's creating a society of dumbed-down individuals, and then it's punishing them for not knowing any better when that's all they've ever been taught. Well, um, what's, what's the Hunter S. Thompson quote? In a closed society where everybody's guilty, the only crime is getting caught. In a world of thieves, the only final sin is stupidity. Yes, absolutely. That's a great one. And I, I just want to throw this out here real quick. If anyone wants to learn more about the Trivium, uh, Jan Irvin from Gnostic Media has a great website called uh, TriviumEducation.net. It's, uh, it, it's the, the best resource online to learn the Trivium. It's got hundreds of hours of, of audio lectures, plenty of book recommendations, some free ones uh, if you really want to delve into this deeper. Yeah, absolutely. So, Jacob, you've, um, we, ha- we haven't really gotten your opinion on them recently, so um, why don't you weigh in on this stuff? What do you, um, what do you, 
what do you think is what do you think is most important for people to understand about the trivium? I guess just uh, trying to to apply it to everyday life and just trying to apply it to everyday uh, conflicts and uh, in in context of the liberty movement, uh, just to try to get uh, a more concrete understanding of uh, where other individuals are coming from. Well, you know, and we all have our own individual understanding because we, you know, each of us, are, I mean, I don't know where everyone's coming from. I, I don't know where the other two gentlemen are coming from, but I know that yourself, Jake, and I are coming from more of a conservative background, so maybe we have a better understanding of, of you know, evolving from that, and we might be able to help others come to the same sort of realization about the liberty movement uh, because of our experience and our own progression, but as we uh, utilize this sort of method of understanding, I think we can, you know, it will it will help sort of break down the semantics that can kind of divide individuals and, and bring us together because I think at, at the core there's the larger picture, and when we started, when you started talking about uh, the initial one that was proposed for an application, uh, I have rights, you know, and, mm-hmm. and that's sort of, that's where we sort of need to begin, and there might be a divide there, as Josh was starting to point out. But uh, you know, there might be a divide there where, where individuals think that you know rights are built through conditionings, or some others might believe that they're innate or natural rights. So that's mm-hmm. that's where we're gonna that's where we're gonna find our biggest division. But I think a lot of people might be on the same page in that regard, and we can go from there. You know. Yeah, and it just it really boils down to the fact that you know we have to understand that. There, there are bigger things at work here, and you know, I call me conspiracy theorist or whatever you will, but um, I've read enough information and I understand the the complexity of what they've established over decades and and how one, once again it's it's as you read and Jacob you can attest to this as you read through Carol Quigley's book and I'm reading reading it right now. As you read through Tragedy and Hope, they do. He really does marvel at the system that they've built, and and I marvel at the system that they've built. They've created an entire an entire country of consumers, and it, through nothing but classical um, classical Skinner conditioning. I mean, not just Skinner. It's like Skinner Pavlov. It's a couple of different things, but they've taught you how to be um, obedient. Um, Jake, Jacob mentioned the, um, what did you say, the appeal to, um, what was it, appeal to uh, a force or emotions. appeal to a, appeal to what? Appeal to fear or emotions. Yeah, appear to fear or emotions. You have the appear to, uh, appeal to force, you know, whoever, or appeal to authority. That's the one that's used mostly in, in the schooling system is to, to get you used to understanding that the person in the front is the authority figure and you do what the authority figure says and it really does take away from your basically like we get back to the the argument is it innate or is it something that's you know given to you by the state you you start infringing upon the the individual's right to learn the way the individual wants to learn and if anybody wants an incredible um, research point for or jumping off point for understanding how your educational system was um, set up and and how you were put into a little box, even if you don't know it, and you're shrugging your shoulders right here and thinking that I'm full, you know what? But just watch this interview with a um, with uh, John Gatto. It's on it's on WeAreNotCattle.net, 
It's underneath the uh, things you should know, and it's um it's called the ultimate history lesson. I highly recommend it. So you know that all being said, um guys, what else um what else do you want to Robert? Do you want to weigh in on something? Yeah, just real quick, I also want to let people a great website for learning about logical fallacies is yourlogicalfallacyis.com. Uh, you go there, it, it's very interactive. It'll walk you through all the steps, and and and, and you really need to go there and learn these logical fallacies. Um, but if if you are hurting for time, I would say focus on the trivium first because you'll point out those fallacies later just using the trivium by itself. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, Josh, what are, you, um, what are you thinking about over there? What's got your brain burning? I guess the, the one critical point that I, I really want to, to press home about the difference between, again, the classical trivium and the trivium method is that the classical trivium was controlled by the input of the general grammar, the who, what, where, and, and when of, of, of any given subject. So when you're trying to discover and order facts of reality that compromise uh, or that comprise basic systematic knowledge, uh, what you really need to do is, is to create context for, for that knowledge, for the who, what, when, where, and when. Uh, and the only real way to do that is to investigate primary sources, to read books, to read uh, declassified documents, uh, to, to, to educate yourself. And, and we live in a world where uh, the vast majority of individuals out there have a drastically shortened attention span. I think something like 3% of Americans read books uh, was, was a fairly recent study that was done. I forget exactly where that was from, so don't uh, quote me on it. But, um, and of <laughs> those 3%, most of them are reading nonfiction Twilight Harry Potter garbage. Hey, uh, I mean, not, not, <laughs> to anyone, not to knock anyone who reads uh, who reads nonfiction or, or fiction, excuse me. But the point is, is that we uh, uh, we live in a society where people think that they know uh, things because they've been told that they know them their entire lives, and really mm. they don't have the context uh, to to really flesh out this grammar to then apply the logic and the rhetoric properly, at least. So it's up to people like us and people like the listeners, people who do sit down and read books like Tragedy and Hope, people who are willing to pour over uh, declassified MKUltra documents, people who are willing to trace the lineage of the Rhodes Roundtable, for example, to really get down to the nitty-gritty of history and present this to other people in a non-confrontational way to the point where you know maybe they don't go out and read a 1,300-page book like Tragedy and Hope, but... Maybe they will sit down and, and watch uh, G. Edward Griffin's The Capitalist Conspiracy uh, to, to get a greater understanding of these things. You know, the, the, the understanding can come from anywhere, but it's really important that we have a, a group of people like ourselves that, that are really well armed uh, with, with this kind of contextual knowledge of history to then present it to other people uh, so they can come along with us on this understanding. I would yeah, like to... And- and 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 maybe and maybe Robert can um can defend his uh, Harry Potter fetish. <laughs> well, I'll defend my uh, any habit when done in moderation is not a bad habit. But what I was going to say, <laughs> uh, what what I was going to say is that uh that I would like to tell the new listeners, anybody who's listening uh, to this for the first time and just now getting interested, um, the the very first fact you should learn is that nothing in history happened by accident, ever. That's a conspiracy theory. 
And, well, no, it's not a conspiracy. That's, that's just put your tinfoil hat. Put put your tinfoil hat away, Robert. No, history <laughs> history books that I read in public education told me that that's what happened. Anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to mock. It's the it's the coincidence versus consequence argument. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. I mean, in history, as far as man, human history, um, nothing happened by accident. Everything was planned in one form or another. It's just simple cause and effect. And, and if you look at that yeah, go ahead. color, if you look at history with those colored glasses on, then I think the trivium and logical fallacies and everything that we touched upon here today will be a whole lot simpler. Yeah, and once again, this is going to take um, this is going to take some owning up from the listeners and just kind of admitting to yourself it's something that I had to do, uh, admitting to yourself that maybe you don't know everything. And it was funny; I was watching an um, an interview or actually a, um, I guess it was kind of a tandem interview with uh, Luke Radowski and Ben Swan, where they were um, basically you know, talking back and forth about journalism, and they made a very, very valid point, and I wanted to bring it up, because we're all in kind of the media arena, so we need to understand that and get this across to the listeners, is that we went from reporters being the people that ask all the questions to the reporters being the people that have all the answers, and that's typically not the case ever. Nobody ever has all the answers. We're going to mess up. Even if you do real journalistic work, you're going to get a bad source. You're going to make a bad, you're, you're going to make a bad um, judgment on a specific scenario. Something is going to happen that's going to be misleading or it's not going to be you know, in your favor. So we have to look at it from that perspective and the fact that you yourself have made errors in the past. You know that you've made errors. So think about it. From this perspective, okay, I've messed up in the past. I've done these things in the past. What makes it so out of the realm of possibility that some of these issues or events that I've heard about, not even really research, I just heard about them because you were probably half asleep in history class in high school and college anyway, or you were trying to pass notes to the person next to you or trying to get a hookup for Friday or whatever. But hey, you, hey, you, why hey, are you insulting me. Hey, listen. <laughs> Robert, we got to keep it fun. You mean you, so you're the scapegoat for this episode. It's fine, um, but that, but but in all but in all seriousness, everybody, just be honest with yourself. How much do you really know? And I think that once you can ask yourself that, you're gonna be a lot better off. Um, Jacob, you've uh, you've been kind of quiet, man. Um, and guys, do you uh, do you want to do a little extra time, or are you guys are you guys ready to jump off, or what? I'm good to go. All right, anybody else? Anybody else good for I'll, – I'll put it for another 30 minutes, and then um, if we want to cut it short, we can cut it short. So we're going to do some extra time, everybody, because uh, I don't think 10 minutes is going to really cut it because now we've gotten past the meat and potatoes and the basic inner workings and the gears and the motors of everything. Now we can really get into how this applies to your day-to-day activities and also applies to history. So, Jacob, what, what, um, what do you want to say on the subject? Oh yeah, how much how much do I really know? Uh, yeah, it's not a whole lot. I mean, that's that's what you end up finding out when you start attacking everything uh, in this manner. I mean, you you begin questioning your own position, uh, which is the whole point of it. I mean, the whole point of it is to strengthen uh, your own resolve and and your own your own feelings, so that uh, you know maybe you can. You can just grow and evolve as an individual, and that's all you can ask. Uh, if if I could ask Robert a question from one of your statements earlier, I would like to, if possible. Yeah, yeah, man. All right, Robert. Um, I 
I know that you sort of you had mentioned that you feel as if uh, history is sort of a cause and effect relationship. Am I understanding that correctly? Yes, that it has a, uh, a similar relationship to cause and effect, yes. Okay. Um, what makes you feel that way about uh, about history? What, what makes you feel as if um, everything is sort of evolved from a cause and effect? Well, as far as human history goes, it's once you put consciousness into the equation, you now have decisions being made. And so as far as human history goes, because consciousness came about before we started recording it, Everything in recorded human history had a cause and effect. Someone wanted something to happen and did it. Uh, someone didn't want something to happen and stopped it. Um, you know, so as far as history goes, I believe there's a cause and effect. Some, if you look at an event, it will have a cause. It will have reason. There was a purpose behind it. Right. Okay. I think I'm understanding that, understanding that a little bit better. Um, so it's not as though you're – are you – would you call yourself as a determinist then? Would you feel that uh, everything is sort of predestined and everything is sort of, uh, there's, there's no way of, of affecting the world around you? Is that it's kind of predetermined or is, is I, didn't, I didn't really catch that from there. But or, or, or do you believe it's engineered? Or is it, like an, is it like an engineering complex, I guess, is, is probably a different way right. to look at it. Do you think it's, yeah. Predestined, or is it all social engineering from one perspective or another? I, I, I tend to take the Forrest Gump philosophy, that it's a little bit of both. There are certain things that happened in the past that predestined an event that will happen because of said event. Um, so some level of predestination happens. If I drop a glass from a top of a building, it will hit the ground and shatter and break in the future. Um, you know, so there are certain things that are predestined, but do I think that we can stop upcoming events that we see coming? Absolutely, because cause and effect. I have a cause, and it will have an effect. Sure. Cool. Yeah, I just wanted to clarify that, uh, and I definitely have a better understanding of what you meant when you said that now. Thanks. Yeah, no problem, dude. That's cool. Look, we just used... How dare you use the trivium? <laughs> That was a plug for the Trivium. Everybody share this with everybody that you know. It does work. Say. Yeah, that, that's the Trivium at work right there. And, and Robert, uh, on, based on your kind of uh, example, or I guess your understanding of history, you know, this kind of cause and effect history versus the, the coincidence-based history that we're so often fed, I think the history of World War II, as it is taught in public schools, is a wonderful example of this. Uh, you know, you learn the names and the dates and the people and the places and the battles, but you never really get uh, a, a comprehensive understanding of why all the people in a given country at one time just decided that it was a good idea to march uh, uh, an entire creed of people off into the ovens and uh, try and take over most of Western Europe. <laughs> um, and, and Josh, because because it, it just because that's what they did. They're Germans. They're not Americans. That's what they do. Exactly. There's another logical fallacy. They, they were just evil people, you know, and that, and that's yeah. the def, that's the, that's the the yeah. childish kind of explanation that we're given. Yeah. And uh, ethical or genetic fallacy, yeah. 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 Oh, there's another one. The well, genetic fallacy. I thought it was because Hitler was a bad painter. I thought that's why this happened. I'm... 
Well, yeah, he was, you know, he, he, didn't, he, he didn't have a statue of, um, was it Henry Ford behind his desk or anything? Was it, didn't he have it in his, he had it in his office, didn't he? The statue of Ford? I don't know about that, but uh, ha- uh, there was a good chunk of Mein Kampf that was essentially a love letter to Henry Ford, an American yeah. eugenicist. He, he, had a, uh, he had a statue in his office of Henry Ford. Good luck, guys. Don't bomb the Ford <laughs> plants, everybody. Don't do that. Yeah, oh, yeah. Sorry. but but who created uh, the commission shortly after World War II to kind of homogenize uh, the the history textbooks on on the subject? You know, that was that was the Rockefeller Foundation. So mm. the the some of the same people and players who who helped to instigate the the rise of Nazism in the first place. Mm. Uh, so it's it, it's all these kind of uh, chains of history connecting these dots to see the big picture. Uh, you kind of realize that all these players, all these names, all these dates, they they recur in history, and it's it's almost a form of pattern rec- recognition, um, mm. which is which is again much much easier to sort out once you have the trivium on your side, once you have a greater understanding of logical fallacies. Yeah, and it's um it's interesting when you see the the mainstream media, they'll um they'll typically demonize um the quote unquote conspiracy theorists and they make it sound very outlandish was it you josh that i was talking to the other day where they talked about the warren uh when the warren commission came out that they said that they were just call them conspiracy theorists and nobody will believe them was that you telling me that or was that somebody else yeah it was actually it was uh kind of that that term i believe was developed by the rand corporation but it came to light uh Exactly, but it came to light in a, in a CIA document known as 1035-960, uh, entitled Concerning Criticisms of the Warren Report. And it's essentially uh, the CIA saying, okay, we've got these people out there that are writing these, these books refuting the Warren Commission report. It's a big concern because 46% of the American public does not think Oswald acted alone. Uh, so their action then, they say, well, just create this label, call them conspiracy theorists, because it's a loaded term uh, that, that has, a, has a negative connotation. And if you tack theory onto conspiracy, uh, then you automatically conjure up images of, uh, of it not being concrete fact, but the mere ramblings of a, of a madman in his mother's basement. So. And what fallacy would that be, Robert, that we already mentioned tonight? Uh, that would be the straw man, wouldn't it? No, the the one where the 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 argument is um, childish, but it doesn't um, it doesn't mean that it's not supported. Oh, the, that fallacy, fallacy. The one, one more time. The fallacy, fallacy, because something was poorly argued, mm-hmm. uh, it's therefore wrong. There you go. There you go. So, once again, it it all just kind of comes full circle. This is um this is actually happy fun time for me because I'm just kind of. I'm relaxed now, and now that we've gotten through all the the nitty gritty stuff. So here's a, here's an interesting question for for everybody: What do you think would happen in a society where we all use the trivium? Do you think that it would? Is there a reason? I, I guess it's a better way to phrase it. Is there a reason that we're not taught the trivium? Do you believe in the? Um, I guess Josh, you know this better than I do. But do you believe in the hierarchical theory that we have to have a peasant or a working class, that we all can't just have this great knowledge? Um, we'll start with uh, Jacob. What do you think? Well, I think 
you you know they they'd lose uh, their ability to uh, steer the cattle, right? I mean, they like like the, what we're on. I mean, people would mm-hmm. begin challenging things like when you'd use the term like gun violence, people would be like, "Wait, hold on, you're associating an inanimate object with uh, with being capable of committing." Uh, an act on its own. So, I mean, mm-hmm. you'd be like, wait, you can't use that language. That language <laughs> is is full of fallacy, you know. You're, you're, you're giving inanimate objects, you know, this is like we're in a fairy tale of some sort. So I think it would, uh, you know, we'd have, we'd have more uh, Socratic dialogue and we'd actually progress instead of uh, just sort of becoming slaves. Yeah, and that's that's why I think it's so important, and I think that's why we're devoting a show to it, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's trying to break the chains that bind you, and it's, you know, um, I said it on my last show. It, it, the biggest, the biggest battle, and um, and Alex Jones has even made this his trademark phrase. But the biggest battle actually does go on between your ears. It doesn't go on in the streets. It doesn't go on with bullets and missiles and stuff like that. It might in you know foreign nations where they're fighting for sovereignty or fighting to keep um, U.S.-funded Al Qaeda from overthrowing their dictator or whatever. But um, here, it it really does. It's a um, you're actually under um, mind manipulation or as most like to call it mind control, and it starts yeah. from a very young age and it progresses and you um, basically get suspended in and I would say an intellectually 15 year old level if you're lucky and you just operate there for the rest of your life believing that the ones and zeros in your bank account are actually dollars that the paper that you actually touch is issued by your government that you know all of these all of these fallacies that are do not have any semblance of reality but you believe them because of the conditioning and the um, the mind control that you're under. Anybody yeah, else can I, take it? Oh no, I, I would I would absolutely agree. And you know that uh, that that term the or the quote you, you know the revolution in between your ears. It's totally true. Uh, I I do think that Alex Jones uh, kind of phrase from uh, Richard Grove because that was the original tagline for Eighth the State Media, which was his original publication. Um, but mm-hmm. I'm glad it's being I'm glad it's being put out there anyway. But uh, Jacob brought up an excellent uh, logical fallacy um, about you know ascribing these kind of personal feelings to an object, and it's actually it's a, it's an ironic one because it's called the pathetic fallacy, um, <laughs> which is essentially ascribing it's a literary term for ascribing human emotion to uh, to aspects within nature or inanimate objects. But here's the interesting thing, uh, and Jake uh, Counts, I know you'll get this, the British, the British cultural critic who coined the term was a guy by the name of John Ruskin. Oh, our boy. <laughs> we will be talking a lot about Mr. John Ruskin, actually not a lot, but we will be talking about Mr. Ruskin in our New World Order for Dummies that will be, um, that will be airing here very soon, so... Um, and once again, guys, uh, if you think the New World Order is a conspiracy theory, if you and, and your um, Rhodes Roundtable, um, or excuse me, Rhodes Scholar, uh, Rachel Maddow, want to get, um, get in a little boat together, then go so be it. But um, anyway. I would like to say this. It's just something that I, I've come uh, to as far as the New World Order is the reason that the New World Order is so easily dismissed is because it's, it seems like this futuristic 1984 world, when mm-hmm. really 
or I, I would like to call it the old world order because Absolutely. they wanted to go back to elites and slaves. No, they only had they only had they only had the middle class because they ran out of slaves because of the the plague. It was nothing to do with they wanted to relinquish power. It had nothing to do with that. It had everything to do with well, everybody's dying, the elites are dying. I mean, psh, I guess we could give these guys some property or something like throw them a bone. Maybe they'll do something for us. Oh my God, they worked harder. Holy cow! <laughs> <laughs> and so it begins, and the enslavement begins. That's kind yeah, of you, key. You have, to, you have to show that it works because I believe the elites and the New World Order just, they, some of them, you know, are evil as fuck, but I believe that some of them really are just that confused in that they believe that it just, the system cannot work in, in other terms. They have, mm-hmm. there has to be, they have to be the one pulling all the strings because we're such morons, but really they've pulled the strings to create it like you've sort of We've yeah, they've sort of covered here earlier, but you sort of get what I'm what I'm uh, trying to get at there. Yeah. Well, they they make it they make it completely viable for them to do what they do to us because we're stupid, but they're the ones that make us stupid to begin with. So it's it's almost like a self fulfilling prophecy for them. It's like, well, we'll dumb them down. Oh my God, look how dumb they are! If they didn't have us, they'd be so screwed. Like, yeah, it's it's your fault that we're all dumb. I mean, well, it's yeah. none of our. Yeah, go ahead, Josh. Exactly. Well, I just, I, I kind of wanted to maybe even take this in a little bit, uh, slightly different direction on that same theme, though, and and throw in throw out another term for you guys, and that term is technocracy. Uh, we are living in a society where, through the implementation of uh, of Prussian school system, of the Prussian school system, uh, of the implementation of of, of mass psychology, uh, of the the ideologies of uh, of people like Sigmund Freud, Eddie Bernays, Walter Lippmann. Um, we are being dumbed down on, on a massive scale. Um, but at the same time, uh, do you think that the elite themselves are also becoming victims of, of their own plan to a certain extent? And do you think that smarter elite, uh, maybe even 100, 150 years ago, when they decided that they wanted to usher in this kind of technocratic, technological dictatorship, uh, mm-hmm. that they even foresaw that uh, because... You know, we're getting to a point where even even the people who pull the strings are getting pretty sloppy. So now what we're seeing is creation of, of large um, computer databases and, uh, and algorithms to make these decisions for us or for mm-hmm. them. If for them, know. yeah. And then you run into I – mean, to, to your point, um, a prime example would be war in Syria. That was the sloppiest propaganda I've ever seen in my life. That was just really – I mean I understood that the, that the, um, that the Gulf War was a, was a hoax because I, I, I never – I mean obviously you heard the weapons of mass destruction and all this stuff, and then it comes out that they never found them. And that's when I really started to ask a, a few questions. 9-11 was the you – know, about a year after 9-11 was a big boiling point for me. But to your point, Josh, I mean how sloppy was that? They use chemical weapons. And now guess what? Guess what, everybody? If you're paying attention, have you heard about Syria lately? Mm-mm. Haven't heard about it. It is not relevant anymore because the the agenda is now off the table. But now guess who's back in the news? Our old buddy, Iran. Absolutely. So anyway, um, anybody else want to comment really quick after what uh, what Josh said? I had, to, I had to jump on that because I was just thinking that that was the sloppiest propaganda I've ever seen. 
it really was. But I wanted to go back to something real quick that Jacob was saying, you know, about how some of these people are evil. But what we're seeing now is you have you have your psychopaths in the elite, you know, these ones that, you know, I guess for the lack of a better term, you can call inherently evil. But now you see zealots, the, the, these people who are in the upper echelons, if you will, but actually lead semi-public lives where they're out there cheerleading for the system. And mm -hmm. uh, that's where I think is the most dangerous. And this is why I think statism is a big problem within our libertarian and voluntary and anarchist circles and the reason we harp on it so much. Because statism is another zealot, uh, another a zealot nation, uh, nature mm -hmm. of that elitism, the worship of the psychopath, the worship of being led. And then the and, worship of the state and nationalism on top of that, and, and in the, the fact that Americans, since we've always been the good guy, or we thought we were always the good guy, that we're always going to be the good guy. And if we're droning somebody, it's for a good damn reason. It's not for contracts. It's not for that. It's for a good damn reason. They were bad guys. We got a bad guy. Yeah, they're brown and overseas. What else do you need? Absolutely. Hey, Barack Obama said he's good at killing people, man. I don't doubt it. I, hey, Michael Hastings, that was a cluster, you know what? But anyway, I'm not blaming you, Barack. You know, don't come after me, please. Yeah, anyway, so... He is good so at moving, killing people. Oh, it's really sad, isn't it? My, it's really, it's, it's really sad to... It's really sad to see, um, I guess, people just check out, like emotionally and morally check out. And that's what gets me very frustrated with um, with the population sometimes. It's not that I don't love you guys. I mean, I'm trying to teach you things. I'm trying to point you in the right direction. I'm trying to give you things to read and understand. And, and then you can formulate your own opinion. Once again, I'm not trying to, to spoon-feed you anything. I have my perspective, and that's given through you know experience and things that I've seen and things that I've experienced and read and, and all those types of things. So it's not that we're trying to feed you stuff. It's we're trying to... to Move your directional um, thinking, I guess, from the television to something that's really going to matter. Because I think we can all agree, even when I interviewed Lee Camp, I couldn't believe that he said it. And, um, you know, he was an Occupy guy. He goes, there's not much time left. There's probably 10 years left. And that's no joke. Because what's going to happen when we lose the monetary system, if we lose it? What's going to happen if they shut the power off? Believe me, people have done crazy stuff in the past... Don't think that, you know, don't use the, um, uh, what is that called? The, um, oh man, I just, I lost it. Where something has never happened in the past, so therefore it can never happen. Like, since a tornado is, has never hit my house, therefore, vis-a-vis, uh, -vis, uh, a tornado will never hit my house. What is that called, everybody? Somebody help me out here. Throw me a bone. It's um, a fallacy? <laughs> I don't yeah, know. It's definitely a fallacy. Um, um, just because it was, it doesn't mean it yeah, won't, won't be, uh, just because mm -hmm. it was doesn't mean it continue to be the same as it, as it goes on. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, oh, I can't remember. Is it the flat earth fallacy? Um, it's not I don't the know. term I'm looking for. All right, you get, you, somebody else, somebody else take the mic, yeah. I guess, yeah, I guess, some, like somebody else take the microphone, I'll figure it out, I'll figure it out. Go ahead, somebody else go ahead. This is going to bother me. <laughs> oh, yeah, go ahead and look that up. I'm kind of kicking myself for, for not uh, knowing exactly what that is. Normalcy bias. The... Holy shit. There we yeah, go. Yeah, sure. Oh, yay, the normalcy bias. Oh, there we and go. the first profanity was used right after the airing. That's good. 
We can cut that out. <laughs> anyway, for those of you that are listening live, I'm trying to watch my language because I would like to, I would like to get a better audience. And not saying that you guys aren't awesome, but if I clean up my language, I might be able to get to um, a couple of different people that might be turned off by profanity. So trying to reach as many people as possible um, with with this type of information. Go ahead, man. I, I was going to say that's what LMR is for. If you want to, you know, you know, just cut that loose and. and why do you think I? Why do you think you? Why do you think I come on your show and after about two or three cocktails and just let it rip? So, um, by the way, journalistic revolution, everybody. Um, Monday, Wednesday is it? Monday, Wednesday, Sunday is that it? Correct. Monday, Wednesday, Sunday from 11 p.m. until whenever they can actually maintain it. I think it's like one in the morning. Yeah, one in the morning is uh, our our uh, no no less than, uh, but we do go into black hole hours sometime. Where we talk absolute gibberish and let it devolve into a horrible, horrible discussion. Absolutely, and I've been part of those uh, black holes uh, events, and they are fantastic. Um, not so great the next morning, but while they're going on, they're fantastic. <laughs> yeah, they're but a lot it, of fun. But I, go ahead, sorry, Josh. I, I would like to go back to, to one kind of geopolitical point and back away from uh, all the talk of the trivium and logical fallacies, although we can certainly use them in discussing this. Uh, when, when we're talking about Syria and how uh, how kind of botched that situation was and how it was really kind of this, uh, again, just a geopolitical blunder, really, um, it, it, it could be interpreted in that way. Um, but another way to interpret that, that situation is, uh, if I don't know if you guys have read uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski's latest book, Strategic Vision, America yeah. and the Crisis of Global Power. So, yes. Jake, uh, in, in his chapter, uh, Beyond 2025, uh, mm-hmm. and I'll read, I'm going to read this paragraph really quickly. Um, a larger European framework that involves in various ways Turkey and Russia would mean yep. that Europe, still allied with America, could become, in effect, a globally critical player. This yep. resulting bigger West, sharing a common space and common principles, would be better positioned to offset the tendencies in some parts of Eurasia towards religious intolerance, political fanaticism, or rising nationalistic hostility by offering a more attractive economic and political alternative. So mm-hmm. when we see that there, there's this, uh, this situation that, that evolves in Syria and, uh, and the Obama administration supposedly, again, screws the pooch on that one and, uh, and this ex-KGB tyrant comes in, and uh, and kind of stymies your political move and and creates a, 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 a I guess an agreement that's fairly amicable to everyone. Um, mm-hmm. Would you see that potentially as uh, as these backdoor um, kind of consolidations being made while in public these two forces are uh, are at are at odds to a certain extent, but it, it, behind closed doors uh, these kind of grand political master strokes are uh, are worked out days if not months in advance. I, I would I would say that that is a very um, astute observation as well as a very probable situation. And I would say I'm judging this on a couple of different things. Once again, that book is very interesting if you read it. And um, um, Jacob, you would give a you get a real kick out of it because it does zoom out from thirty it does zoom out from thirty thousand feet and look at um, look at the entire world and where it's going and where it's progressing. And one of the challenges that he talks about is the that America has to survive, and that's like leading into the chapters that he's Josh is talking about. America has to survive because of our our 
not our political power, but our economic power and how we're situated and how our middle class is situated and the dollar and all these other things that no other currency is ready to take that over and as far as having the burden of being the national currency. So that is that is highly probable, Josh, that they would do something in a backdoor scenario. Just because I've seen things um, in videos, I've seen... I've seen uh, white papers. I've seen you know transcripts of uh, once again transcripts are what they are, but um, just using rhetoric from a standpoint of using global governance as an excuse to make things better. And I say this, and also on top of the global governance, uh, climate change was also a one used by um, this former UN head. If you guys want to check out a great documentary, it's called UN Me, and it really does expose the UN for what they are. And um, it's just a bunch of very high-ranking political people that have no interest, and most of them aren't very smart at all, and and have no idea what they're really doing. They just know that they're given you know talking points to go back and say to their to their culture and their community. And they're given big checks, and their and their countries are given big checks from the UN to help build, you know, infrastructure or however they want to funnel the money. But um, it was interesting to hear one guy say that the that the slaughter in the Sudan, which for those of you that don't know, the Sudan had a year where there was genocide of about 200,000 people. But didn't see that on CNN because obviously it doesn't really matter because it's in the Sudan. No minerals or anything over there. Not really a key geopolitical player. So the guy actually came out, and I can't remember where he was the ambassador from, but he said that he believed that the issues in the Sudan all stemmed around climate change. He had no idea what he was talking about. And the guy asked him to clarify, and he goes, so you mean climate change is causing these massacres? Yes, climate change is causing it. It's what's causing everything. So... To your point, Josh, in a roundabout way, absolutely they could work these things out in the back because the people steering the ship for some of these countries aren't savvy enough to understand what some of these agreements are. If you look at like the Trans-Pacific Partnership and things like that, I right, think that there, is, there, there are more things going on on paper around the world than we'll ever see in front of a television screen. Yeah, I, Jake, if I could interject, that's exactly what I was thinking is I feel like, you know, this sort of thing is already occurring and not just with Trans-Pacific but Trans-Atlantic. I mean, I mm-hmm. think that's, isn't that, that's essentially what's occurring. I mean, you're, you're you know, you've got... NAFTA and GATT were good. Other things ...and they're, they're, they're saying, you know, like many things, they're saying they're going to keep these meetings open and in the public and then they end up being in the private and then no one really covers that fact and... But and they're not allowed to see. They're not allowed to report on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's gigantic implications to these trade agreements. It's <laughs> and and we're essentially we're going to have a world governance, and everyone's going to think that it's it's not there, and then it's just going to be oh well, well, and then how do they explain it? And retroactively, I guess it's, it's this same sort of uh, utilitarian type of it's for the good of everyone type of uh, argument, I guess. Well, Josh, is it like a Fabian socialist agenda for the most part? Would you, um, from from the people that I respect their research, that's what they say, and I haven't done enough to to really understand the Fabian socialist model from the inner workings. But what would you say that this governance that we see going on behind the scenes? What would you classify this as? Well, 
Is it corporate uh, governance? I, quite frankly, I think that it's uh, it's a lot of competing factions that tend to agree with one another far more than they disagree. You know, you've got your Fabian socialists, you've got your your Rhodesians, uh, you have your internationalists, uh, all, all of these kind of groups um, that you that find bankers. Yeah, exactly. A lot of hands at play. Yeah, they, and they, they all find uh, global governance and the consolidation of, of power, the loss of sovereignty on an individual and a national level, they all find this mutually beneficial. So when I look at things like the UN, uh, do I think that the UN was potentially at some point going to be, or at least founded to be the cornerstone of glo- this kind of global governance system? Absolutely. Uh, do I think that that plan panned out well for, for these global comptrollers? Absolutely not. I think that the UN is, is just like NATO, just like uh, the IMF and the World Bank. It's a tool that these people use. When it contradicts their, uh, their agenda, they kind of ignore it out- outright. You know, these, There are countries getting together in the UN right now uh, to, to sign a mandate against uh, American international spying. Uh, I highly doubt that that is a, a, a referendum that's going to make it very far, or at least get much coverage. Um, <laughs> exactly, but if, if if these people were to were to come out and talk about a, a global carbon tax or carbon credit uh, system, uh, then you can bet your sweet butt that you know Forbes is going to be all over that one, or Bloomberg, hey, or hey, AP, or hey. Reuters, or hey, just just well, listen real quick, Josh. Two side agreements that protect labor. And side agreement to protect you, and not until oh, the two absolutely. side agreements were completed uh, did we agree to support NAFTA. Now this is a good deal for our country, Larry. And let me ex- yeah explain to me again how NAFTA was a great deal for our country, Al Gore. Oh, and by the way, don't you own the carbon trading system that you're pushing all the carbon taxes for? Well, that, that he set up in the mid-90s before mm. uh, he was so benevolent in telling us about these, uh, these horrible atrocities that are caused by anthropogenic CO2-based global warming, which is a complete and utter falsehood, as I'm sure many of your listeners already realize. But I guess uh, my biggest point is that people, when people talk about uh, the UN being a force for global government, I think it's a tool. Uh, really where, where the true evil is going on right now in this consolidation is through these trade partnerships, that yeah. are then, uh, again, implemented through the IMF and the World Bank. Uh, Michelle Chosodowski wrote a great book about this. It's called The Globalization of Poverty and the New World Order. He was actually a professor in, uh, in various South American countries, in Chile and Argentina. Uh, as um, these kind of backdoor deals were being made and, and uh, this, this Western capital was flowing in and all of these uh, these revolutions and dictatorships uh, were rising, like uh, that of Augusto Pinochet. And he says, you know, this isn't this isn't the brown shirts or, or the black shirts or the UN coming in marching marching in with their boots. This is a war of capital, and they get the locals to fight their battles for them. The divide and mm-hmm. conquer strategy. Uh, so, and I know that we all know this, but it. it and now they're really using it on the American people now, and that's what we got. We're we're no, not absolutely. even to the finan- We're not even to the financial point yet. But they've almost got us to the financial point because we're looking at, um, you know, we're looking at all these people on on the welfare dole, and that's where it really, that's where it's really going to change and where it's really going to shake out. But go ahead and continue, Josh. Well, I, I just and and on that point, just continuing really quickly with my thesis because it it all kind of uh, you know wraps up in a nice tidy little terrifying bow. 
is that when you have on balance sheet sovereign debt to GDP, uh, the way that the United States, most of uh, Western Europe, certainly some Asian countries that are aligned with NATO like Japan and South Korea have right now, um, the only way this ends is either with incredible fiscal chaos, which uh, the likes of which we haven't seen since the Great Depression, and it, this would make the Great Depression look like a cakewalk. But the only real way this ends is war, uh, whether that war is civil or it's some global conflict that ensnares all of these countries who's, uh, who, have, who have bought into the, into the petrodollar kind of trading scheme. Uh, mm. War is how this ends. It's, it's the only way it's ever ended in human history. Um, so it's, it's really important that people understand how we got here, not only so we don't make these mistakes again, but so when, when this war does either come to your doorstep or it's, it's on your television and they're trying to whip you up into a fervor for it, uh, you really have to understand how we got here and, and, and understand that there is a different way. There is there's a war that can be fought in your mind and there's a war that can be fought with blood and guts and, um, and guns. And, you know, one may become an inevitability, but while we still have time, uh, it's, it's the war between your ears that's the most important. Mm-hmm. Robert, what, um, what are your thoughts on the, on the, um, on the New World Order? Do you, uh, do you agree with Josh's philosophy? Do you, do you substantiate my claims that, you know, that, that they use um, front groups and more goes on behind the scenes? It's most of this stuff is just meant to distract us. Uh, I, me and Josh and you and I have, you know, discussed this extensively, and mm-hmm. uh, I tend to subscribe to both. I, I think the, I hate to use this example, but I think, no, I think that the best way to do it is, uh, do you guys remember the card game, the Illuminati? Yes. Oh, <laughs> you mean the? No, don't do that, man. Come on, you can't let the people know all the tricks. <laughs> But no, I actually used to play this game. Me and my friends, we used to be, uh, before my, my turn from the dark side, we used to study Machiavellian scheming and uh, the art of manipulation. And so we actually used to play that game for fun. And that's what I see it as. It's a bunch of people at the top who all have similar freaking goals, but in reality are selfish little pricks and are going to do what's best for them in the end. And that uh, the best way... To- of doing that is through manipulation of other groups, the zealots, who think that they are doing it for a good cause, and that would be the manipulation behind the scenes, if you will, and um, and that ultimately, in the end, uh, the group I don't think is ever going to win. There, it, it'll just be this perpetual torment or cycle of human condition. So you don't think that there's any way that we could break free from from the stranglehold of the elite in the fact that is it just because they control the way that we're educated, they control um, almost everything? I think from permanent. Uh, when I, when, let me uh, you know, it, it explain myself just a little bit. I think permanently. We can't destroy it permanently. And that's because over a long enough timeline, the chances of, uh, of anything eventually become 100%. So, I mean, uh, I, it is a large, large cycle, but I, but I also think that there's ways to stem it, be prepared for it. There's things that we can do, but we have to evolve past thinking about just right now and me and myself and, and looking at the bigger picture as, uh, of humanity as a whole before we could start stemming it before it happens. 
Absolutely. So, um, Jacob, what's um, what are your thoughts? And then we'll just kind of wrap it up after this, guys. We'll we'll, we'll end with the uh, pricks in the New World Order. We'll end with you guys. <laughs> you got you guys run the show anyway. You're you're the man. We'll all say it. You're the man. Whatever. All hail the lizard overlords. Absolutely, John D. Rockefeller. You're the man. Whatever. Yeah, I guess what people are kind of uh, tossing back and forth is whether there's really a whole lot. Uh, that you can do and, and, and can this really change and I think that uh, you know as, as long as they as the elites exist there, there's going to be the, the corruption there because I think that it's a true statement that absolute power corrupts absolutely and eventually you just kind of get caught up in your own hubris but I think that uh, essentially you know what what can we do other than what we do is which is just try to get people to start uh, start changing their own individual constitutions and consciousnesses uh, mm-hmm. because, because there's not a whole lot more to fight in that war because it, it seems as though, and as you read, you know, the, the text that we read, it seems as though they're going down the path to where they're going to implode upon themselves and it'll be, you know, their, their own doings that will... Uh, them in, but it's it's kind of hard, and I, I think Josh was sort of even talk about it. Is is you know there, there's an alternative path to war, but it's it's difficult to to tell someone that uh, they need to uh, you know assimilate into a new culture essentially because their their culture is is uh, is fading. You know they they want to believe in in uh, in what they've been fed, and they don't you know they fear change and it's hard for them to evolve past that. So it's it's going to be a difficult, it's a difficult road to uh, try to have people encounter and overcome that fear. Absolutely. And so that's, you know, that's why I think we all do what we do because we've reached a certain level of understanding and, and it's, you know, it's what you would do. It's what anybody would do if you know this information. If you know this information, or if you have, you know, if you have a good grasp of the trivium, and you're not teaching it to people, then shame on you. But at the end of the day, we all have to do our part. You know, we can't. We're just one cog in the wheel. Hey, Robert, what's your say? What do we do? What do we do if we just throw our body against the what? Oh, it's uh, throw our bodies against the wheels and the levers and upon all the apparatus. That's it. Throw your body against the machine. Resist at all levels, everybody. Try to get out there and arise the conscious uh, humanity that's in all of us. I mean, the cosmic consciousness exists within you. Remember from the uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson clip that I played last week, you know, we're all bits and pieces of the universe. We are all made out of the universe, which is, to me, a mind-blowing thought. And it should be a mind-blowing thought to you as well. So get out there and share that with everybody. Share to them that we're all interconnected in some way, shape, or form, that we have real challenges going on outside of our day-to-day life, and that we have to make, and this is very important, you have to make time. I understand that we're all busy, but we have to start making time for doing research, making time for trying to you know, expand your horizons, um, clarify your understanding of what life is and how to interact with human beings and how to be moral and upstanding and right and just treat people with respect. So. I guess that's. I'm going to end it on that. That's my little rant for the evening. So thank you to. Um, here, here, I'm yeah. 
Go ahead, I'm Josh. real sorry, right, real quickly, before we leave, because I, I think I have an excellent William James quote that not only sums up what, you, what you've just said, but kind of how we can get out of this situation. It, it, it reads as such, Habit is thus the enormous flywheel of society, its most precious conservative agent. It alone is what keeps all of us within the bounds of ordinance and saves the children of fortune from the envious uprisings of the poor. There you go. Well, that's what we face here in America, everybody. And and it's not that we don't love you poor people, but um, we're in a, a big pickle, and it was done like this on purpose. Whether you believe it or not, we are in a big pickle. So thanks for listening, everybody. Be sure to check out the website, wearenotcattle.net. Be sure to check out the Journalistic Revolution every Monday, Wednesday, and Sunday from 11 until 1 a.m., and you can find that on libertymovementradio.com. We just had our one-year money bomb last week, so that was a lot of fun. Went to the wee hours of the morning, and conversation went in about 50 different directions, but I'm sure it's a fun listen. So thanks again to uh, Jacob Yannicki, formerly from Adam vs. the Man, Josh and Robert from the Journalistic Revolution. Uh, I'm your host, Jake Counts, from We Are Not Cattle. Remember, everybody, get a friend, get informed, and get involved.